But before he gets up here, uh, we're going to turn your attention to the screens, and we're going to, no, we're not, are we? Oh, man, that's such a habit I have. <laughs> Can we just load up a, anything, funny caps, something? All right. Is that right? We're happy to have time. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Good morning. It's really good to be back. Um, it's really a privilege to fill in somewhat as the search for a teaching pastor continues here. And um, it's, you guys have become kind of like family to us, so really feel honored. So thank you. But I'm going to mess that up tonight, this morning because I'm going to start by ruining your morning, if that's okay. All right. Because um, I'm going to show you a clip from a horror movie. You ready for this? You like, came to church for this, didn't you? So there's a, the sleeper hit of the, of the movie season has been a movie called A Quiet Place. Some of you probably have seen that. Um, it's a horror movie where shortly after this invasion of these ugly aliens who can't see but who have super enhanced hearing and it leads them to attack and devour anything they hear make a sound, which is really cool. <laughs> and uh, they've wiped out most of humankind, but there's a few survivors and those surviving have learned that they can't make a sound or they face immediate attack. And I'm gonna show you an early scene of the movie of, of a family who survived and who needed medicine and ventured to get it in, a t in an abandoned town. And now they're heading home silently together through an area known where these things are. And if you have not seen this movie and don't like spoilers, I'm just gonna invite you to turn away for the next 60 seconds. If you're listening online to this or listen to the audio later, because it's called a quiet place, for the next minute, you're just going to leave you to use your imagination. <laughs> and here's what happens. Well, that's disturbing. <laughs> All right, yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Now, I showed you that for a couple of reasons. One was just because I just wanted to kind of freak out. <laughs> but, it, but another reason is because that, the movie uses silence, and silence in our lives can indicate one of many, many different things, can't it? You, there could be silence that means something's really wrong. There could be silence meaning that no one's home. Silence can mean that someone's really mad. Some of you are going through that right now, silent treatment stuff. It can mean that nothing's happening. It, means that there, it could mean that there's impending catastrophe. It could mean the kids are up to something. It could mean that something ominous and imminent could be something awestruck, awe-striking is occurring. And it could mean that everyone's eating. Silence can, can mean a whole lot of stuff. And so 
having finished, and, and this series, as you heard, is going on Route 66, the 66 books of the Bible, to see how they all point to one story. They all really point to the Son of God coming. And you're going to see more of that today. But having finished uh, an overview of the first 39 books of the Old Testament, taking a little rest area stop here before venturing into the New Testament, there's this period in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament that is sometimes called the silent era or the 400 years of silence. You may have heard it referred to that. And the main reason that it's called that is because during that time, for one of the only times, uh, sustained times, in the story and the revelation of God being presented, there, is, there, there are no prophets speaking for God. So it's, called, it's been called a silent time for that. And it, it, Malachi 4 ends with this, where with, with prophet Malachi says, See, I will, God says through him, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And he mentions Elijah's going to come. Elijah had already come. And who is it referring to? We find out later that John the Baptist was filling the role of Elijah. But between Malachi and John the Baptist, two prophets, there's 400 to about 425 years of silence. And it's called that, but that implies something. It implies when we hear about silence, it implies inactivity, doesn't it? You think, well, okay, nothing's going on. Or some scholars have speculated and said, you know what? It was pretty much because of God's anger. And God just kind of folded his arms and said, you guys still aren't getting it? You're still not getting it. Forget it. I'm not, I'm not bothering you with any more prophets. I'm not going to even bother anymore. Now, all that's speculative. There, and there, but I want to I uh, suggest to you that we shouldn't call it the silent era because that silent nomenclature implies that God isn't interested, that God isn't doing something, that the story has kind of hit a pause or that, that there's this break. And that is absolutely not true. It is not a time of inactivity. It's rather a time of anticipation, and it's a time of readiness that's going on for the biggest component of the one story. And if you haven't heard this yet, I want to make sure you hear it again. When you hold that volume in your hands, and you have the Word of God in your hand, and you say, man, it just spans all these thousands of years, and it's got all this multitude of writers, and there's weird stuff going on in the Old Testament. It's all in another part of the world, and what's this all have to do with it? You need to understand, there is one, it is one story. It is absolutely one story. I've suggested to you a way to kind of summarize what that story's title could be, or, or the theme of that story, and I've suggested to you that this is a way I use. That that story is the making and redeeming of God's kingdom. That God had a plan and God set up a way to have a kingdom where he is a king, that his glory that he's had from all eternity is shared and there are beneficiaries who get to appreciate and participate in who he is. That his kingdom, he said, would be something that's perfectly calibrated. That is, that all of life is drawn from him. All of those who are created beings reflect his glory back to him. It lives in harmony with each other. And that, that is the picture God had. And the one story basically says that that picture got ruptured because he made us in his image, and one of the things he gave us was a chance to choose. And we, through our our first father and ever since, have chosen to mess up the story by declaring ourselves our own king. But immediately when he did that, immediately when our race did that collectively, and by the way, you and I are all guilty. You're a sinner sinner by nature. We're broken and we're fallen and we're separated. We screwed it up. We, can't, we could lay it all at Adam's feet, but it's our doing too because we're also sinners by choice. But God decided from the moment that happened, God decided 
that story's not ending. I'm going to make it happen. And God went into the process of continuing the story of the making, because he made it, but he also redeemed. The redeeming of his kingdom, that picture is still going to happen. God intends it. God is behind it. He is doing it. He will do it. And get this. So this isn't just some study in a book. You are part of that story. By virtue of the fact that you are an image-bearing creation of God, the highest of, cap- of what he has created, the capstone of creation, by virtue of that, you are a pivotal player in that. God designed you to be part of that. We are all part of the story. So God then enacted the rest of the story, the redeeming of that story, and the and Old Testament continues to play it out. Now, I showed you this as a kind of just a, uh, a few weeks ago, as a couple times, as kind of just a summary statement to say there are component parts that God is assembling all through the story to bring it to fruition. That God has this kingdom idea, and so it starts by him creating a realm, the heavens and the earth. It's the canvas on which he's going to paint this big story. It's what we ruptured by, by our sin. And once we did that, then God instituted a plan, a rescue plan, by which he's going to bring that kingdom picture back to f- fruition. Parting that plan was that he assembled a line of human beings through which he was going to deliver that which would pay the price for the sin and would restore this. And his line was the people of Israel. He said it's very, very important. And so much of the history that that we've seen in the Old Testament is God trying to get that line together, trying to get it so it's purified, make it distinct from what the world has become. That, that line then has a land in which the, the centerpiece of the story is going to play. It's the promised land. It's the land of Israel. It's, a, it's a, still a very important, it will always be a very important part. Even in the new ki- heaven and the new earth, it will still be the capital of this redeemed kingdom. Then God introduces a system by which he's going to picture what he's going to do so that, so that people can trust in him and what he's, what he's going to bring, that blood is going to be spilt for an innocent, for, for the guilty, that system, the whole sacrificial system is introduced as a picture till he fulfills it completely. But it's more than just getting everything ready. Then God works on the, what we've called the receptivity, meaning the ones who are supposed to be the subjects, he, he, is, he understands this is not just him ruling with an iron fist. He doesn't want that. He wants willing subjects. He wants people who bow willingly. He wants relationship. Please hear that. All through, the, all through the Old Testament, God has said the same thing to his people. Don't get caught up in all the, all the trappings and all the system stuff. What I really want is your heart. I want to dwell with you. I want to love you. I want you to love me by your choice. That was how this is designed. I want you to draw your life because life is better for you when that happens. And he works on the receptivity of people's hearts. And then he introduces the Redeemer. The one who will absorb our sin. The one who will take on our, our hell so that we don't have to. And then the one who is installed as the rightful king. And then God throws the big whammy at him and says, guess who that's going to be? I'm going to do it myself, he says. It's not going to be one of you. I will sit on the throne. And the second person of the Godhead who's all, always existed as the Christ, the, second, the son of God, takes on human flesh and becomes Jesus. And that's what's going to happen in the New Testament. That picture shows us that there's a component parts that all go into one story. And I want you to notice the word in the bottom circle, okay? The word redeemer or redeem. That's going to be a key word as we continue to see what happens. 
So what we could, if we just step back for a minute and say, okay, what's been established so far? We're at the rest area. We're at the rest stop. What have we, what's been established as the Old Testament has played itself out? And we've seen that those component parts have come together. It's kind of like building a championship team. You don't just take the field. You have to draft well. You have to train well. You have to scout well. You have to, you have to systematize well. You have to, you, it takes time. It takes the right choices. You have to arrange, or, or if you're not into sports, it's like making the ultimate meal if you're a chef. You don't just go to the kitchen and see what you got. You arrange the ingredients. You get them in order. You get them prepared. You time them. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I just eat it. But those of you who do, you know how that works. And you got to arrange it so that it just, you get the right stuff at the right amounts, and then you line it up, and it gets done at the right time, and then I come to the table. And the thing that you need to know, what you really want, is you want people to get there hungry. So does God. When he delivers what he wants to do in your life and in mine, he wants you to be ready for it. He wants you to embrace it. He has no interest. God's a gentleman. God has no interest in forcing you to bow to him. He has no interest in just dictating how your life's supposed to work. He wants you to be ready from a heart that says, this is what I was made for. This tastes, this tastes better than anything. This is how I win. I, want, I will come willingly. And so the component part, the Old Testament has gotten the component parts together, the ingredients together, to bring this to, to, to completion and God does this collectively. Here's just an aside. God does this, he's done this, been doing this collectively with the world for thousands of years now. He's been bringing it all together. Can I also suggest something to you? He also does it this way in individual lives. We'll come back to this. But I know that some of you dragged a bunch of stuff in here today that you really aren't, you're, maybe you're not even here by your own free will. Somebody else made you come. You're just appeasing somebody. Or, or, you're, or you're angry with God. Or you don't understand. you got so much that is out of sync right now. You, have no, you don't see any hope for that situation that's going on. Can I just give you a little teaser? The stuff that God does, he does not just for the world. He does it for you. He's doing it for you. Can you hang on to that for a minute? Okay, now, here's the other thing that the Old Testament's going to do. It's going to establish to a world and a receiving audience who has turned away from God and forgotten who God is. It's going, it is established again who, what his character is. Who, who is this being? Like a lot of us in our culture now. Well, is, is there one? Are there many? Is there one at all? And if so, what, what, what's that being like? Is the, what, what's his character like? And so the Old Testament has gone a, a ways toward establishing the character of God. Now, what it's done, what he's done is, can we just say this? Part of what the Old Testament does is it debunks a concept. And Craig talked about this a, few, a couple weeks ago. Or last week, maybe, whenever he spoke to us. That, that, that the picture, that this whole concept of in the Old Testament, God is a God of anger. And the New Testament, he's all of a sudden in a good mood. Poof, like, oh. God of vengeance and wrath and a God of grace. Wrong. That's wrong. God, who is always full of justice and makes it clear that you're, there are consequences for choices, he wants to, uh, people to understand exactly who he is. Now, if you've got a Bible with you, I want to invite you to look in the book of Exodus to what for some is a very uh, a familiar passage or at least a familiar story. 
Because Moses, who didn't know who God was either when he called him and said, who are you? And he says, I am that I am. I'm the one that is. I'm the only one. He's, he's working with Moses to give him the law and to tell him, here's, get the system in place. And Moses asked God, he goes, you know, I got a request for you. This has got a little bit crazy, but if I'm going to represent you, I would really, could you just show me your glory? Because I think, I, he doesn't even say why. He just like, that would just be so cool. <laughs> could you just show me your glory? And God basically says to him, oh, I could do it, and it would just annihilate you. Let's not do that. But God, because he's gracious, says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take you up on the mountainside. We're going to create a little uh, watch spot. Almost like, it's, it's like looking at the, you can't look directly at the eclipse, but you can watch the reflection on the thing. I'm going to send you there, and I'm going to let my shadow, I'm going to pass by. You're going to be able to see my back. And so this is where we get the cleft of the rock that, you know, that Moses l- looks through. And God graciously says, I'm going to let you get a little glimpse, one that won't kill you. And that's happening in, in, in Exodus 33. But I want you to notice something that God says. Look at verse 18. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And then he says, this doesn't get mentioned a lot. And I will proclaim my name. This is the tetragrammaton, the Yahweh, the one who is. In our translations, usually capital L-O-R-D, the Lord. Every time you see that, that's the tetragrammaton. The one who is in your presence. So he's not just going to pass. He's also going to make a declaration. It's like a pronouncement, like when the royalty comes in and say, and now presenting. He says, I'm going to announce myself as I do that. Now look at chapter 34, and you'll see how it happens. So Moses, this is verse 4, chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones, went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning. And it says, verse 5, the Lord came down in the cloud, stood there with him, and here's what happens. And he proclaimed his name, Yahweh, the Lord. And he passed in front front of Moses, proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh. And now he's going to say something else. Now, what God is about to say here is God is declaring to Moses the, how he would summarize his identity, his character. He's about to say who he really is. Now, before we take a look at what that is, let me explain just a little bit. Sometimes that's called a tagline. Or it's called a slogan or a subtitle or it's a catchphrase. It's, I'm declaring who I am and this is who I, what I do. Now, you've, you've heard of that before, right? Because there's some very famous taglines. Companies do it all the time. And, and some of them are so famous, even after decades, you can say what they are. For instance, Timex. It takes a licking and... How many years has it been? Hallmark. When you care enough to... My wife's all-time favorite. M&M's. Melt in your mouth... It's a tagline. It's a statement that says, we want to define ourselves by this. This is what truly defines us. There, uh, some people have done some, what they say, if, if taglines were honest, if they were truly honest, what would they say? And there are a handful of them, and I just want to show you some. One is whiteout. Whiteout, if it had the true tagline, says, there's a dried up bottle in your junk drawer. <laughs> Ikea, we throw in extra parts just to mess with you. <laughs> Old Spice. Smell like grandpa. <laughs> WebMD. 
convince yourself that you have a terminal illness. <laughs> Kmart, we still exist. If you work for any of these, my apologies. Subway, let that bread smell soak into your clothes. Yellow pages, here, you throw this away. Here's one for all the parents. Cheerios, cardboard rings. Pepsi, when there's no Coke. Best Buy, try it out before buying it on Amazon. And Activia, helps you poop. Now God wrote his own tagline. God said, this is going to summarize who I am and what my character is like. I'm going to announce myself. Here he is, Yahweh, Yahweh. And look what he says next, okay? Again, 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He goes on, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. Uh, he punishes the children and their children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations. Now, what I want you to notice about that is the first part of that phrase, because God's going like, to lock onto that. And the New Old Testament is going to repeat that phrase over and over and over and over again. If you want to know how God views himself, how God wants to be seen, how God, who God really is, what is God's tagline, that is the phrase. And I, 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 in my mind, I, 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 I kind of just say it this way. I say it's, it's C-N-G, S-T-A-A-I-L, okay? He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Here's just a sample, Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are compassionate and gracious, God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. There are variations that happen all through the scriptures. Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. You start looking for this, you're going to see it everywhere. Psalm 145, 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, rich in love. The prophet Joel picks it up. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. It's about your heart because, here's why, this is the God we're talking about. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Nehemiah the prophet says it, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And even the prophet Jonah, now get this, this is, I just love this, because you studied jo Jonah, and Jonah rebelled, and God tells Jonah, obey me, go to the Ninevites. He says, I hate those people, I want you to kill them, just go get them. God says, nope, I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. The whole story ensues with the fish, he comes back, he preaches, sure enough, God, they repent, and God spares people. And when Jonah goes and feels sorry for himself, and goes and complains, he's talking to God, and he's just spitting mad. He's just, he's like, ugh, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. He spared those stinkers. I, I, why did, and God is talking to him as he's sitting outside the city, and this, look at this, this is Jonah 4, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, oh Lord, isn't this what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew. I know, I know who you are. And look what does he say. Here's what I know about you, God. You're gracious and compassionate, God. Slow to anger and abounding in love. God who relents from sending calamity. Now, oh Lord, take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. It's like even when he's complaining about what God doesn't do, he still says, I know, I know who you are. I know what you're like. Guys, listen, that is, has been who God is from eternity past, for eternity future. That's who he is right now. That's who he has always been in the Old Testament and will be in the New Testament. 
God is establishing that that is his character. Behind everything that God is doing, even in a fallen world, even that's still under the curse, even when we don't understand it, when God does his plan, the quality that is true of him is that he is a God who is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in love. Can I encourage you to just kind of commit that to memory? Not just so you can spout it off, but so that when you are going through the stuff that you're going through, as the plan is playing out in your life and you don't understand it, or it seems like you're seeing things that don't, don't seem very kind at the moment, understand behind it is someone who, of, about whom that is true. He is compassionate. He's compassionate to you. His attitude, look, I don't care what you did last night. I don't care what, how you violated his, his word or his ways this week. When you walked in the door today, you came in to worship somebody who when he looks at you, his attitude toward you right now is that he's compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger, but he's abounding in chesed love, covenantal love, willing to sacrifice to do anything to get things back the way he intends and wants them to be. That's the way he is toward you. So the Old Testament leaves off with, with this happening, that God has brought the component parts together, and he's, ready, he's getting ready to bring the main centerpiece of it, and he allows then time for alignment and anticipation to build. Now, we could spend a whole time talking about this, and you could study history and just see it. But during that 425 years, historical activity is continuing all through that stuff that it, God is active. The temple gets com- completely reconstructed, which God has said is part of the system being intact. The exile is completed. The full return from captivity is going on. Prophetic fulfillments are going on in that time. All the prophets of Daniel, where, where he says these nations are going to rise, they're going to fall. The, the Assyrians are going to fall. The Babylonians are going to fall. The Persians are going to rise. They're, they're going to fall. All of that stuff is happening. They're, they're, that's being completed. Israel is being preserved. The time of the Maccabeans happens. Jacob, uh, Maccabee against uh, the Seleucid Empire that tries to wipe out the Jews. And, and the, the reason they, have, they celebrate Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, it all happens during this period. God preserves his line. Remember that component part? That's going on. And then all those nations that got predicted that rise and fall, they all are instruments of God to do things they have no idea they're doing. The Greeks rise up. The Greek empire rises up. And it, and it brings a trade language so it covers almost the entirety of the known world so that by the time the message of the gospel is going to go out, people are able to communicate it with each other more fluently. The Roman Empire rises up not long before the coming of Christ. And the Romans bring in a time of peace that allows trade to happen and people to communicate more. And they build the Roman roads, heard that phrase, that allows transportation to happen so that the world can be reached. All of that's going on in that time. But maybe most importantly is anticipation is allowed to build because God doesn't want to just enact his plan. He wants people to be ready to embrace the plan. And the more you wait for something you can't wait for, the more ready you make for yourself for it, the more you anticipate it. See, the people are anticipating, and they still did by Jesus' day to a large degree. They, some of them are wanting an emancipator. Some are wanting a political reformer. Some want a, a justice enactor. Some want a pro- protector or provider. Somebody wants, a, somebody wants a conqueror. Somebody wants an assurer or an affirmer. By the way, when people think about Jesus today, that's exactly the same, right? You want Jesus in your life? Well, what can you do for me? 
Can you get me a job? Can he, you know, can he make me happy? Can he, can he affirm? Will, is he willing to come in and, and just affirm my lifestyle, whatever it is? Can, if, hey, sure, who, want, who doesn't want Jesus in your corner? And God says, no, I want you to be ready to receive who I am, not who you want me to be. Can you just mark that down in your mind? Who he is, not who you want him to be. I want you to embrace me for what I'm going to do. And then he accomplishes something in the waiting. Because you could say, well, it seems like an arbitrary thing. When's he going to, but the 70 weeks of years are going on and there's stuff happening. But then Galatians 4, Paul says, but when the time had fully come, that's an important phrase, at the fullness of time, at just the right time, when God had allowed enough of the preparation and anticipation to build, to get the receptivity ready for what he actually wanted to do. Again, here's just an aside. He was doing that with the world, but he also does it with individuals. I'm going to guess that there's some of us in the room who a year ago or five years ago or even six weeks ago, you may not have been ready to consider surrendering the direction of your life to somebody else, especially God. But maybe the fullness of time is happening for you. Or maybe you've already following him, but there's something going on that's turning the course and you are fighting it tooth and nail. You're angry about it. You're trying to make something else happen. And in the fullness of time, God's going to show you that he has something, another agenda in mind. Let me ask you the question. Is that okay with you? For, let's be honest, because, look, I'm committed to being honest with my life. I'm done trying to pretend. I'm done trying to put up a front. There are a lot of times in my life where it, that's not okay. Oh, God might say is a better idea, but I am not ready for him to do something other than what I think he should do. I got stuff like that I'm holding on to right now. And God is stirring and saying, all right, let's see if we can bring you to the place where you're ready. And it might be for some of us in the room, you're just coming to a place where you go, well, maybe. Maybe my heart is a little more ready to go. Maybe my heart is a little bit more ready to surrender. Might that when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, the king, God in the flesh, born of a woman, born under the law in the system, right? He's got a line and he's got a land and he's got a plan. He's got a system. And then here's what he came to seem to do. See the word? To redeem. What's the theme of the whole story? To make and redeem God's kingdom. To redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. God wants to get us to get ready in the fullness of time to do what he wants to do. And I'm going to put it this way. God wants to do the one thing that God does best. We just saw the Christopher Robin movie and was reminded of characters. And I've always loved Tigger. Because the wonderful thing about Tiggers are Tiggers are wonderful things. Has me about it, but I could sing it. Um, but one of the things I like about Tigger is full of himself, and yet he's adorable at the same time. I kind of feel like that's me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I shouldn't tell, should I? 
My wife has, we, she's assigned characters in our extended family to all the characters in Winnie the Pooh, and she makes me be owl. Who wants to be owl? So I, I don't want to be Tigger. She goes, you're not Tigger, you're owl. Owl is, owl is full of himself and thinks he knows everything, period. He's not even lovable. Like, okay. <laughs> I digress. But one of the things that Tigger does is Tigger, whatever they need done, Tigger goes, oh, that's what Tiggers do best. Doesn't matter what it is, right? Bouncing, that's what Tiggers do best. Looking for stuff, that's what Tiggers do best. Everything you do, that's what Tiggers do best. Well, you could say the same thing about God, right? I mean, God is the almighty, let's, but we're using anthropomorphism here. All right, God is, God is good at a lot of stuff. God is fantastic at creation and at ruling and at providing and protecting and enacting justice and being holy and exuding glory. Okay, God has ultimated all that stuff, but if I can put it this way, you ask God, what do you do best? I really believe he has an answer to that. Before I give you it, let me just ask you, what do you do best? Just for fun. In fact, lean over to the person you came with and tell them what you think you do best. All right, go, go. What do you do best? Some of that stuff you've got to keep to yourself, actually. Okay, back. Now, you ask God, what do you do best? I think with a glimmer in his eye, if I can, again, if I can anthropomorphize a little bit, I think what God would say is, you know, I do a lot of stuff well. But you know what I do best? I redeem stuff. I take stuff that is broken, stuff that's twisted, stuff that's ruined, stuff that's beyond hope. I take, I take lost stuff and mutilated stuff and contaminated stuff and hopeless stuff and dead stuff and I turn it into something unbelievable. I, I make it better than it was before. I, when, when nothing else can be done and it seems like it's, it's completely lost, watch what I do with stuff. Watch what I can do with a fallen world that you think is just going to hell. Watch what I do to redeem it. Watch what I can do in an individual life that is so run, so run itself into the ground that it doesn't even look like itself anymore. God, can buy, he buys stuff back. He, he weaves it into a new purpose. He brings it to life. I want you to look at one other passage in, in the Old Testament. Look at Isaiah 61. You may have looked at this when you did Isaiah. Because, again, a well-known passage and you'll, you'll recognize, perhaps, if you're around church some, you'll recognize some of this. Psalm 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he, the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me. Do you remember? Do you recognize this? You know why you might? Because Jesus unrolled the scroll of the Old Testament, opened it to Isaiah 61, read this. This is in Luke 4 and says, what you just heard got fulfilled today right here. This, he says, this is about me. This is what I'm here to do. And look what he's here to do. He sent me. He anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from the darkness, from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of ju judgment of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow them on them a crown of, and here's a phrase. Some of you heard this phrase. A crown of beauty instead of ashes. You ever heard that phrase? God says, I take ash. There is nothing more destroyed than ash. I take ash 
and I turn it into beauty. The oil of gladness instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. He, he does that. God does that. See, you could say it this way. God is love. He says that, right? God is love. But God does redemption. And he loves doing it. He's good at it. There's this um, phrase I hadn't heard too much before. I've heard of recycling, but I had not heard of upcycling. Some of you are very familiar with that. So you take a thing that's been used and used up and you turn. And the difference is you don't reuse it for the same purpose. You take something that it can no longer serve its purpose or has a lesser purpose and you turn it into something that has a higher purpose or a new purpose. And I wasn't aware of that, but, but that, that it's a fairly common thing that's being done today. And it turns out that my wife is into upcycling. Um, Marsha creates these handcrafted items and she sells them in a small uh, shop near us. And she does bunch of creative and cute things, but there's one of them that she's done that has turned out to be something that accomplishes a much higher purpose, and it has to do with Hawaiian shirts. Now, I saw a number of uh, sporting Hawaiian shirts, okay? So what I'm about to say applies to nobody in the room right now, because you guys are rocking the Hawaiian shirts. Thank you. You're looking good. But for a whole lot of our culture, Hawaiian shirts are basically, could be defined as the out-of-shape, middle-aged white man's suit. <laughs> and there's this tension that grows in marriages all over the place because the dude thinks he is looking good in Hawaiian shirt, and his significant other goes, oh, man, that thing, I do not want to be seen in public with you with that. It is time to mothball that. It's time to get rid of that. He goes, it's, uh, it's, this is who I am. This is, feels so good. I look good in this. They go, the world doesn't agree with you. And so what are you supposed to do? There are constant arguments about that. And you say, look, he's not, he, want, he does not, he will never throw away the Hawaiian shirt. And you say, but you look like a mis-sized pup tent in that thing. Can we do something with it? And so, so why don't we get rid of it? He goes, it still has good use left. It still has good use left. And so my, my wife had this idea. And what she does is she goes and she finds people who have that going on. And they get their Hawaiian shirt, she brings them, they bring her the Hawaiian shirt, and what she does is she takes that Hawaiian shirt, and then she, she does some sewing magic on it, she stuffs them with new innards, and she makes them into couch pillows. <laughs> now, he gets to keep the shirt, he gets to regularly look at the shirt, he can enjoy the shirt, and she gets to be seen in public with him without embarrassment. It's upcycling. She is rescuing marriages, people. <laughs> this, this the, we, the, the little, speaking of taglines, this is what we were calling it. It says, saving the world one Hawaiian shirt at a time. <laughs> My wife, um, <laughs> she, she has this thing where we're walking down a trail or in, or in a store, and we'll walk by somebody, and she'll just, she'll just lean over and she'll just say to me, she'll just one word, Pillow. <laughs> like, pillow. Oh, that's a pillow. So if, by the way, as you're leaving today, if you just happen to hear something behind you with that phrase, it may be time to think about a change. Now, here's what God does. God upcycles. God takes that which 
has lost its purpose. And, and let's be more serious about it. That which has been destroyed and ruined. That which has, has no future. That which, which is beyond hope. And God says, okay, but this is what I do best. I redeem stuff. And I redeem people. I take eternal beings who are lost forever and I do something that they thought could never be done in their lives and for their lives. He did it for all mankind. He takes what should be discarded, what is hopeless and helpless and ruined, and God says, I'm setting up an entire system. The entire story is to come and to redeem this thing. For all of mankind, he's going to come down and he's going to absorb all our penalty on himself through his son. He's getting ready to do that. He's going to present himself. He's going to give it for free. He's going to establish his kingdom and make no mistake about it. Oh, it's going to happen. He's doing with this a kingdom plan. Acts 3, 21, it says, now that we're in the New Testament now, but it's talking, he must remain in heaven. This is about Jesus who came to earth and died and, uh, and suffered and paid for our sins, rose and conquered death, ascended into heaven. He must remain in heaven until time comes, God, for, to, for God to do what? To restore everything. As he promised, see what he says? As he promised long ago through his holy prophets. It's all one story. Right at the end of the book of Revelation, he who was seated on the throne said, when it, the story is completed, and, etern- and not completed because eternity continues it, this is what he says, I am making everything new. Oh, I mean, I am preaching better than you're listening. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. All right. But see, he, does that. he doesn't just do that with mankind. He doesn't just do it with his story. Please hear this. He does it with you. He will do it with you. He will do it in your life, your situation, not just your eternity, but your present. God, it, God is a redeemer. He, takes, he makes new paths. He, he shows new purposes. He conceives things we could never have imagined. He has a new hope. He gives a new identity to somebody whose identity is ruined. He gives a new impact to those who th- think they've lost it. There are examples in the room. You know, I hope you gather in a small group this week and talk about this. Hope you'll sit down with people and talk about how's he done this in your life. Because there are some people in the room who've experienced death. Something you thought could never be redeemed. And God has done something through the death. He's revealed something about himself. He's shown, he's opened doors that you never thought would have happened. He's done that through disease. With people sitting right here in the room. He's done it with failures. Absolute failures. Moral failures. He's done it with business failures. Marital failures. He's done it with really, really bad decisions that are, some that are being made right now, he still plans to do it. He's done it with dreams that were so dashed and there's disappointments that are so intense, we think we will never recover from that. Devastating things. He has redeemed so many people here today. And if we lined up and started telling stories, we would say, he's still doing it. He still wants to do it. Let me ask you this. Can, can, I, can I get you to focus for a minute about, so this is not just a talk about a God who's out there, but a God who's right in, within your world. What in your world and in your life right now really needs redeemed? What is something that you say, I don't see any way out of this. I don't think there's any way back from this. I don't see any, that there's any repair that could be done to this. I don't see any good that is coming from this. What, is, what might that be for you? 
You don't have to tell anybody else, but you know what it might be. Is it possible? Is there room for you in your heart and soul for you to unclench your fists around that just enough to say, God, if it's possible, if this is really what you do well, then I want you to do it in me. And maybe for you, what that really is, is just you. Your position with him. You feel so distant from him. Maybe, maybe you walked with him years ago and you just the, the distance is so far, it seems. Or maybe you don't even know what this is about and you say, I don't even know who God is. Well, maybe, what, maybe what God has been doing is something to offer you a way that he'll reset your position with him. He'll grant you an access to full, the, the full rights of a son or daughter with him. He'll cleanse and forgive you on a cellular lever, level for the thing that is entrapping you. This is not just religious speak. God has done this in my life. He's done it in people's lives. He'll do it in yours. That's how much his power is. But he's a gentleman, so he's just going to ask, will you be receptive to that? Is it possible that the time has fully come for that for you? And maybe today is a day where you take a step toward him and say, okay, if you're really good at redeeming, here you go. In your own time, in your own way, you decide how it's going to happen. But I'm giving my life to you. Pray with me. We stand in, in front of you in our hearts as somebody who is a full redeemer. And when we sing in a minute, God, I pray that you'll help us so that what we, the words we just, we we're about to say about that fact will come from hearts that surrender to that redemption. I invite you. For some, for the first time, where they may say, I am embracing the gift of Jesus Christ. I put my trust in him. That today is the day where I come to repentance, and I come to embrace your gift. Come into my life and redeem me. For God, for those of us who have situations we're carrying with us, make today when we sing about this redemption and the Redeemer that you are, make it a day where that redemption is something that we enact, that we present it to you and, and we allow you to move in the way you want in our lives. Accomplish that, please. Would you stand with us and we're going to sing.